Welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jay Kill. And we're here today to discuss the Kree Scroll War. Excelsior. <laughs> if you're joining us for the first time, thank you and welcome. If you're joining us from last month or possibly last two weeks, I never know exactly when these are releasing. We are this time talking about the Kree Scroll War, but before we get to that, Jake and I are going to be doing a little bit of housekeeping and kind of establishing a baseline for the current X-Men universe. X-Men, a topic near and dear to my heart. I really love X-Men, but for a long time, for various reasons and some uh, uh, conspiracy speculation, uh, X-Men has not really uh, been an important part of the greater Marvel story. It's been kind of in its own isolated little situation, which has been the case from time to time over the years, but that was uh, definitely true until recently when X-Men became a real big deal again. And we're definitely going to be talking about a lot of X-Men on this podcast. They're one of my favorite Marvel franchises, Um, but we're going to start it off today with an idea of Elias's. Elias, you want to introduce the game today? Yeah, I thought it would be kind of fun uh, to have a semi-recurring segment because there are a lot of X-Books, and both Jake and I are quite a big fan of the current X-Men stuff and seeing how they all play into each other, we thought that we would basically crib from the DC3 cast, who you may uh, or may not know, we're doing a few guest segments called Imagine What If Stanley Created the Marvel Universe? I'm sorry, Created Dawn of X? Something like that. They were talking about that, and they would rank all of the different books that came out each month, and we thought we would do kind of a cumulative running list of all of the titles that have come out during the what we're calling the Hickman era of the X-Men. I'm going to read you the list of all the books that have come out, just so that you guys all have an idea of kind of where we're starting from, and then we're going to address a few questions that people might have. In publication order, there was House of X, Powers of Ten, two series that are one, 12 issues, six issues each. X-Men, nine issues. Marauders, nine issues. Excalibur, nine issues. New Mutants, nine issues. X-Force, nine issues. Probably should have just said from the start, they all had nine issues. Fallen Angels, which was the first casualty of the Dawn of X, uh, ending at six issues. X-Men Fantastic Four, which currently has three issues out uh, with a fourth on the way to complete that. Wolverine has two issues. Giant-sized X-Men has two issues out. Cable and Helions both have one issue. So, Jake, why don't you get us started on answering some of the burning questions uh, our audience may have and or the ones we think, you know, we would like to head off at the pass. So one thing Elias and I learned as we were planning this show is we really like lists with stipulations and explanations and games and things like that. It's a place where we come together. Um, And so we were discussing the rules for how we were discussing X-Men. And one thing that I brought into consideration was that maybe it would make sense to um, assess New Mutants as two different series because there's been two vastly different creative teams doing very different books, even though they all have the same numbering. And even though I think a strong argument could be made for that and it would drastically change my ranking if you did so, we ultimately decided it made the most sense to uh, talk about New Mutants as one series since it has consistent numbering and that's how it's presenting itself. Even though there's the uh, earlier issues, an arc by uh, Jonathan Hickman with art by uh, Rod Reese. And then who's the creative team on the uh, the later issues? I think it was, it was Ed Brisson 
and it wasn't Flaviano. Flaviano is the new artist. Oh, with a number of artists, but it's Ed Brisson and a couple of different artists that he worked with uh, during the run, if I recall. And if I was ranking Hickman New Mutants and Brisson New Mutants, they would be at very different places on the list. But since we, since they seem to be uh, considered one series, I had to take an average of how I felt about those, which <laughs> I feel like is kind of a disingenuous way to talk about artwork, but so is ranking it. And here we are having a good time doing that. We made our bed and we're sleeping in it. Oh, yeah. And you'll also notice that House of X and Powers of Ten, we've kind of mushed them together and we're ranking them as one in the same way that New Mutants, even though the, the arcs are so different. Oh, it was Flaviano. Sorry, I was doing a, I was trying to find the names. It was Flav, Flaviano and uh, Mila, I believe. Uh, no, Mar- Marco Fila. F-A-I-L-L-A. Those were the two. A disclaimer we're going to have to put on every episode is that Elias and I do our best to pronounce the names of creators. We really love comics creators, and we want to get their names right. And if we ever make a mistake, that's something we're happy to be corrected on. And please reach out. Yes, please. Please correct me when I get names wrong. But we're talking, so yeah, House of X and Powers of Ten was advertised as two series that are one. And we have decided to consider it as one. There is a consistency of um, writer and a creative vision on those two series. And they're really, I think, supposed to be read as a 12-issue miniseries. If you read, I mean, it sounds like a fun experiment, but I think if you separated them out into six-issue series and read them without reading the other, you wouldn't have a full story. Yeah, it would be, I think it can be done. And I'm really curious to go back and kind of read them individually and skipping and seeing where I'm like, oh, wow, that was needed. If anyone has done that, if anyone went, oh, this is two different miniseries and just followed only one, how did you avoid the chart in the back that said go and get Powers of Ten number one? And also, what was your reading experience? I'm really curious. I want to know. Yeah, we want you to be a guest. We want to interview you about what it was like to read only House of X or only Powers of Ten. Hell yeah. Our final kind of contentious point is X-Men Fantastic Four. The weird part about this book is... It's not run by the X office. It's run by the Fantastic Four office. And let's actually, let's explain what that means a little Mm -hmm. bit in case you're not uh, into the inside baseball of like the minutia of behind the scenes Marvel. So what that means is that Marvel and uh, DC, a lot of these, these corporate companies divide up all of their books into different editorial groups. So like over at the direct competition, you would have the Batman group editor who oversees Batman, Batgirl, Detective Comics, anything that kind of relates to the same character. Over at Marvel, there are, for their big, big people, they've got the same thing. So Spider-Man has a group editor. Um, Fantastic Four, even though they were missing from the Marvel Universe for a while, has a group editor. The Thor books, I believe, have a group editor, which includes other cosmic stuff. And the divisions are kind of arbitrary. Like for, I, I don't know if this is still the case, but for a long time, Wonder Woman was edited by the Superman office over at DC. And so you had to go through the Superman people if you wanted to do a Wonder Woman book. Oy. <laughs> yeah, and uh, there, there's a lot of, again, if you're acquainted at the uh, what goes on behind the scenes, you know that there's a lot of implications on what that used to mean. But we're talking about Marvel, for better or for worse, and uh, X-Men and Fantastic Four are edited by different offices. In terms of this particular series, X-Men Fantastic Four, I think that the difference is really clear, right? Like when you're reading it, it, just, it feels like it's from a different office. Yeah, it doesn't feel like Hickman came in and said, no, you can't do that. You have to say this. You have to do this to keep it in line with kind of everything that's going on. So they gave Hickman this special title in the credits of every single X-Men book. I think Hickman demanded this title. Called Head of X, and it's in every X-Men title except... X-Men Fantastic Four. 
So that was a big tip off, even though he and the writer of the series, Chip Zdarsky, uh, have both stated that this series is going to be kind of playing a big part in what's to come, which makes sense. Yeah, and it totally fits in the continuity and the story, and it's worth considering. But just uh, it's worth noting that it, that tone and pacing and a bunch of other things feel vastly different. And um, when we're considering just uh, I guess that shows the strength of the editor in comics. Very uh unsung hero of the comics creative team sometimes yep. it's jordan b white correct jordan d white d yeah jordan d white is the x-men group editor and he has been it seems a tireless promoter honestly if you ever see a video of him trying to shill for marvel which is part of the editor's job it, he he does a fantastic job very charismatic very pleasant uh, in person i've met him on a couple of occasions briefly and just like a pleasant dude and with everything in the comic community right now I feel like I, I can't, um, I, I'm really uncomfortable, like, pledging that I like somebody who I've met in passing in a professional setting. But, mm -hmm. like, Jordan, I like your work. I hope you're one of the good ones. You sure seem like it's superficially. <laughs> Please continue to live up to the uh, the image that uh, I have of you. Yeah, and, yeah, it's, we like, we, should, we shouldn't kind of brush off this, but also it feels like a conversation for another day, a much bigger conversation, uh, what's going on. For those who don't know, there have been a lot of, not scandals, but basically stories have been breaking about the really shitty things happening uh, that happen at cons and behind the scenes and stuff that have, stuff that's been an open secret, stuff that's been secret secret, and other stuff that's kind of trickled on down from the Hollywood system that's all nasty and bad and terrible. And Well, I, I, and... Uh, rising from the comic scene but i guess uh yeah if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about that i'd like to really talk about that and mm -hmm. in the meantime if you'd like to have a discussion and uh you're curious about uh what we say uh we, we are both uh writers and contributors to multiversitycomics.com and we've been covering these stories uh, pretty extensively and i for one i'm really proud of the reporting we've been doing and i stand by our work and um yeah if you want to see discussions about that um that's where we're having a lot of them yeah there's currently a running timeline list which is constantly being updated oh my god it's really dark <laughs> it, it is moving back however to x-men to x-men uh one final thing before we get to our list so because of what i've been hearing called the human malware because YouTube will not allow people to say COVID-19, but we can. Otherwise, they get demonetized. All of comics stopped for two or three months. And so all of the books, uh, are, this ranking is from pre-Diamond, the people who distribute all of the books to comic stores, shutting their, their uh, supplies down. What I've colloquially heard to uh, as the before times. Yeah. Uh, so the three issues that are not factoring into our judgments are Marauders, Excalibur, and New Mutants number 10, although I don't think those would have necessarily changed our current rankings. But going forward, they will be considered during our next batch whenever that happens. With any other new releases. Yep. So the way we're going to do this is we're just going to ping pong back and forth all of the titles from worst to best. Uh, and then we're going to talk about them afterwards. Jake, why don't you get us started? You bet. So at this point in time, my lowest ranked book from the uh, Dawn of X, from the Hickman era of X-Men, is Fallen Angels. I got to concur with that. I still think it's worth discussing. And uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in that book, but it is not successful by most measures. No. Um, so I guess that's my, we're down to my, my second lowest pick is probably not the same as yours is the Wolverine solo series. You would be surprised because it's also mine. Oh my God. Did I talk you into it last time we talked about this? Uh, we'll, we'll get into that. All right. We'll get into that. Jeez. All right. My next lowest, are we going to match all the way through? I doubt it. My next lowest is X-Men Fantastic Four. Yeah, no, this is where we differ. I have giant sized. 
you have that is uh it feels absurd to me i can't wait to discuss it giant size wow next up for me is x-force all right we're back on matching yeah a book that i find really flawed but really interesting um after that and i like i i this is why i had my uh, preface at the beginning i have new mutants Ooh. I have Helions. Well, uh, next up on my list, above New Mutants, I have Hellions, which oh, only no. has uh, one, uh, one entry so far. You're, you're going to come after me for this. My next entry, Marauders. This is a subjective list, and yet you have objectively found a way to be <laughs> incorrect. <laughs> above Hellions for me is Giant Size, but now we're very comfortably into I think these books are fantastic territory. I mean, I have X-Men Fantastic Four here now. Mm -hmm. And I can see where your most recent statement may not quite fit that book, but I still contend that it sits here at about the halfway point. Yeah, above that now, and here's where it gets really t tricky for me. So everything above uh, this in my ranking is all uh, really high in my regard, but the next one up is unfortunately Excalibur, Ooh. which I, I feel like I wish I put higher, but I just love a lot of these series so much. Ooh, I have New Mutants at number five. I that's really respectable. And I think I, that pick, uh, unlike your last pick, I'm into that one. <laughs> um, above Excalibur for me is the single issue of Cable we've had so far. All right. We're, we're matching again. That's, I did I thought you'd push back on me on Cable, but that's cool. Okay. Above Cable and the number three spot, so we're in the, my top three, is uh, X-Men. All right. This is where I have Excalibur sitting. Gotcha. At my number two slot, I've got House of X, Powers of Ten, or Hawkspox, if you're feeling vulgar. There's still one more? Oh, my God. I've got X-Men at number two. And my number one book is Marauders. Oh, okay. That lines up. And if you could not figure it out, House of X, Powers of Ten takes my number one spot. Do you want to start by talking about that? Why you made that number one? And I made that number two. So that will also be, I guess, about why Marauders was my number one. But you go first. I put House of X, Powers of Ten at number one because, I mean, that's the book that essentially got me into X-Men. I never cared for X-Men. Never. I was reading Age of X-Men and I was just bored throughout almost every single book. The Rosenberg stuff turned me off uh, and the and I never really got into the older older X-Men books and House of X Powers of 10. I knew almost nothing about these guys outside of like the movies and like what little I had read from contemporary stuff and I absolutely loved it. Fell in love with the characters with the story and I really want to see this through. And like I was I was pretty skeptical about it cuz even though I like Hickman, when they first announced it I'm like, "Oh, this might be good, but it turned out to be so good we created an entire channel in our Slack. It basically broke comics Twitter. It broke out of comics. Uh, and a lot of my friends who didn't really read comics had heard of this series and potentially wanted to read it. And that impact, you just can't understate that. So that that's why I put it at number one, both for, you know, historical importance, but also because I just really thought this was a fantastic book that starts something and tells a complete story. A masterpiece. Your your calm demeanor is almost underselling it. I think it's a real comic book masterpiece. It's a good sci-fi story. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just the science fiction in it. It's really uh, imaginative and thoughtful and creative. It's, like, thematically really compelling, and it's doing stuff with the X-Men characters in a way that felt fresh and that it hadn't to me in a long time. And that summer, when it was coming out a year ago now, was magical. Like, uh, truly having everyone talking about the same books and just getting excited and logging into Twitter on uh, early on Wednesday mornings when it, it was starting to hit the net was like, I, I don't remember the last time that happened. Lost for me, maybe. Oh, wow. Which might be aging me a little bit. But you have Marauders. I got Marauders at number one. 
What has dethroned House of X, Powers of Ten? How did it do that? All right, so this is a tricky thing, and this is also why, I guess, uh, you use these lists to make uh, interesting uh, narratives and stories. I think House of X, Powers of Ten is a, is a total masterpiece in a way that an, uh, an ongoing series maybe can't even compete with because it's got such a clarity of vision and a, and a beginning and a middle and an end in a way that a serialized narrative can't really hope to match in the same way. Mm-hmm. But Marauders is exactly what I want from an X-Men comic. There's not a single element of the storytelling that I find wanting. I love the characterization, and it's some of my favorite X-Men characters, better characterized than I've seen them, some of them ever, and some of them for years. It's got characters who I never really paid a lot of mind to or never cared for, but I'm excited to kind of fall in love with them, like uh, Callisto's role, and that's really cool, and uh, Jumbo Carnation, an important character who appeared for all of one page before the series. Seriously? Yeah, he was on one page of the Morrison. It was the page where he got murdered, and um, he got the, they, they talked about him a little bit, but yeah, he, he's never been a character on the page before. This is all brand new stuff. Oh, wow. And, Ray, and he feels like a fully fleshed out character who's been around for 50 years. Yeah. I love the adventure. I love the fighting. I love, like, in that first issue when uh, Kate Pride was beating up a, a bunch of bigots to rescue some refugees, it was like a gorgeously choreographed and drawn fight scene i just um everything i would want from a stupid uh, superhero comic book that's also a smart science fiction political comic book marauders uh completely hits all my buttons it's like my perfect uh, it's it's my perfect uh, form of an x-men book i probably could and this might happen in the next list flip marauders and x-men fantastic four in the list but i put it further down just because it it feels it's a little decompressed for me a little bit uh, for my tastes and it it's felt a little aimless like it it had a lot of trouble finding its way in the same way that x-force had trouble finding its way and i know you you're like this thing had a clarity of vision from page one i'm like yeah. I, I was talking about house of x when i said that but well, um, i know but i i feel like underneath you're like for marauders you're like this this was like it hit all of the the like you said it hit all the right buttons but i don't know i, I guess it didn't connect with me in the same way and i had i had some problems with the first arc art uh which we talked about in an earlier episode of make mine multiversity but it's still a solid book and for me almost all of the books that sit above uh the final one are well worth checking out especially now uh maybe maybe not like helians and wolverine because we just only have one or two issues uh we need to see how that shakes out more but really i can only not recommend one book of all of these and Fallen Angels. I I cannot recommend it unless you're doing like a historical look. Yeah, I was going to say Fallen Angels is a disaster, but it's not a boring disaster. Uh, And for that, I think it's um, uh, it's well, the ways it I guess the ways it fails are um, interesting and instructive to me. And I think it had a bunch of good ideas and seeing them executed poorly is really instructive because a lot of stuff is bad because the idea is bad. And a lot of the ideas in Fallen Angels aren't terrible. But almost all of the execution is uh, across the board, like from the artwork to the storytelling to the characterization to the uh, the way information is conveyed. It's just like a t- terrible execution by a bunch of people who I know to be talented um, from other works that they've done. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think that failure is as interesting as success. Yeah, I, I, can I can see do, that. We can do, maybe we'll do a, we'll read Fallen Angels for the book club and I will have things to say about it. At some point we might, uh, maybe in 20 <laughs> years. Yeah, in 20 years. That sounds about right. <laughs> Um, but I want you to talk about X-Men Fantastic Four, because I had that very low on my list, and you had that quite high. Yeah, X-Men Fantastic Four is a book that... I'm trying to find the right words, because I I see all of the criticism of it, and 
I pretty much agree on most of it that there's something off about the entire book that like parts of like the characters don't quite talk right uh, and we're not quite sure where it sits. Everyone seems a little mean. Mean but like funny mean which is kind of that's the weird tone stuff I was talking about. Yeah. Like there's a lot more people got jokes in this but the jokes seem kind of mean-spirited which is a weird tone I think. Yeah. I mean I think Zdarsky's always been fantastic at this really like the mean joke especially like when it when when he's dunking on spider-man he's so good at like precisely pinpointing how to make us feel the worst for spider-man while also laughing see i don't think that's mean though you're you're really illustrating to me i think um where the book is letting me down is i think that's really good natured and the characters it's all coming from a loving place both from the writer and the characters but in this the characters seem so hateful it's like uh the x-men and the fantastic four in this really maybe he just really doesn't like reed and xavier and cyclops because i mean they all can be pretty pretty garbage people that's true i mean they're not aspirational figures in my opinion but they're they're fun to read about usually yeah i i mean i'm engaged enough with the central narrative with franklin and with kate who they keep calling kitty and i think that might be one of the biggest problems with this even though it seems so minor it, it it's weird because zatarsky never addresses it it's not like only the children can call her kitty still uh, and everyone else is calling her kate like xavier and cyclops are aren't calling her kate you know this is an issue that's very close to my heart kate is if not my very favorite definitely one of my favorite x-men mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, like, it's a mistake. It seems like an editorial oversight. Maybe if they, when they publish it in trade, they can fix it if they care to or not. Like, that's like a nitpicky problem. It's the it's the pacing and the tonal stuff. And just like, I, I don't think it's that interesting. They had positioned uh, Franklin Richards, the son of Invisible Woman and Fantastic Four, to be this like uh, really interesting messiah figure. And I still think he can get there. But like right now, the story just seems like a diversion from the interesting parts. Yeah, and we also continuity nerd continuity nerd no idea where it sits because i don't know if we, i want to spoil the end of the first marauders arc i know it's been a while but end of the first marauders arc it definitely seems to be taking place before the end of the first marauders yeah. arc but yeah well th so this is this is the importance of an editor right an editor uh, would, if the same person was editing marauders and x-men fantastic four they would know these things and they wouldn't have to look it up and yeah. uh, in this case it's the kind of thing that might fall through the cracks and that's uh somewhat unfortunate we can presume an, ed an editorial box would have been nice a time stamp saying one week after Krakoa or something would have been nice but I mean in the grand scheme of things that really doesn't matter and a lot of your problems I can see happening big Zadarsky stan you love Zadarsky great doom moments um, and it's always nice to see Zadarsky writing the Fantastic Four again because he should have gotten that main book he still might one day and I hope he does yep and I guess that's kind of all we have for this um are there any other uh, books that you thought uh, stood out and worth uh, remarking on? Oh, you're, you rank giant size so low. We need to get into this. <laughs> I thought I could get that past you. I almost did, but I caught you. Uh, I was um, close. Giant size. What's not working about giant size for you? It just doesn't feel... I mean, they're all individual issues. They're not meant to feel coherent necessarily. But uh, it just... I don't know. I, I just don't feel connected to it in the same way that other books have either grown on me like X-Force or have made a very strong first impression like Cable or Helions. I had a lot of trouble with especially the lower down on the list, uh, like really placing things. And giant size just didn't... It doesn't grab me in the same way. But again, it's not a bad series. I just, I don't know. It just didn't con connect uh, as as a series. Like e each issue, kind of like with you and New New Mutants, each issue like really feels different for me and for different reasons. 
and I have a hard time even putting it on the list anywhere. And like, I think you could, I think reading these as like single issues on their own, really interesting. And it's, it's hard to really fit them. I wonder how you'll feel when it's all over. Cause I, I've noticed sometimes that you have the tendency to, um, you don't have a lot of faith that you, I guess you've been burned in the past, but you don't have a lot of faith when you're reading a series that it's going to nail the ending. If that's a contentious issue. And that's definitely the case here because, um, in the first issue, they set up this mystery regarding storm. And, uh, in the second issue, there wasn't a lot of movement on that, but if in the end, everything ties back in a satisfying way. I can see you changing your tune a little bit. I hope so. I certainly hope so, but we will have to wait and see going to be a little while and at some point we're going to ha- get to talk about ten of swords which is going to be really interesting <laughs> very much we're gonna have to talk about it i will say the reason i like giant size i think relates to a book that i know you really like how so giant sized x-men definitely feels like it is putting the artists in the primary creative role mm-hmm. and the and each issue is uh, totally dictated by this around the, or based around the style of the artist and Jonathan Hickman's writing all of them, but he's um, taking a very hands-off approach in scripting for him. Like, usually he's a very, uh, he seems like a real micromanager kind of writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can feel these feel so different. And they don't, re- they remind me most of all of the collaborations between Mark Wade and Chris Samney, particularly their run on Black Widow, where um, they elected to have Samney's name, who is the artist, go before Wade, who is the writer, which is not typical Marvel practice. And they did that to emphasize this is going to be an artist-driven story, and the artist is the real storyteller here. Giant Size seems like it's really a uh, spiritual sequel to that idea, and that's what I like about it. I can see that. I see, I, 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 I'm willing to change my mind on this series. It's not that I think it's bad. Potentially, I think X-Force might be a lot worse from those early issues. I think like with Wolverine, I have not seen enough and I have not like really gotten my hands around what it is as a whole. I'm willing and ready to change my mind on this book. Hopefully it won't change for the worse. I hope the same thing. So we're going to take a small break and then we'll be back with the book club section. So we're going to be talking about the Kree Scroll War, which I know I have a lot of thoughts on and I'm certainly excited to hear what Jake's are. Excelsior. Hello, podcast listeners. We're the hosts of the DC3Cast. I'm Zach. I'm Vince. And I'm Brian. Each week, we discuss most of the new releases from DC Comics, focusing mainly on Rebirth, Wildstorm, and Young Animal. We also look at the news of the week, discuss the film and television adaptations of DC material, and dig into industry rumors. We've also had a number of DC creators on our show, like Scott Snyder, Jim Lee, Christopher Priest, Steve Orlando, and Joshua Williamson. So, if you like Borat jokes, no bad to end Dio impressions, this is bad, what the f***? And an in-depth look at DC each week, join us every Wednesday morning at multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. Come get Jurgens with us welcome back folks we are the make my multiversity podcast and i know we're not coming back from an actual legit tv ad break so i don't need to reintroduce the podcast but you know when you start talking your brain takes over and your mouth starts moving and the years start coming and they don't stop coming we are here to talk about the crease scroll war so before we get into it we should probably talk about why we picked this book and then kind of what the hell the book is that so we picked the book Kree scroll war because currently or probably within a month or so the empire event the summer 2020 marvel event is going to launch and it features a character called hulkling who is basically the messiah and is supposed to unite these two eternally at war space 
Empire's decree and the scroll, and then they're going to beat up Earth. We don't know much more than that with the current event. But it's clearly positioned as a sequel, right? Empire is, is clearly supposed to be... Uh... There, I think Marvel even re is releasing like a one-shot summarizing the events of the Kree Scroll War in case you feel like you need to catch up to understand the events of Empire. So the way Marvel is advertising for this, they're saying Kree Scroll War really important, and we took that seriously, and we went back and we read the original 1971 series. A little bit of history on this series. So it was originally published in 1971, and the creative team was, and it's going to be a long list, so get ready. It was written by Roy Thomas. Penciled by Neil Adams, Sal Buscema, and John Buscema. Inked by Tom Palmer, Sal Buscema, J Sam Granger, George Russos, Alan Weiss, and Neil Adams. Colored by, and uh, I'll get into why the coloring's a little weird. Colored by Tom Mullen, Michael uh, Kelleher, and Will Glass, and All Thumbs Creative. And then lettered by Sam Rosen, Art Simek, and Mike Stevens. So I read this in the collection. They published, I think it was in like 2010 or something, they published the Avengers, Kree Scrawl War, and this is where I got the credits from. But the coloring, it's recolored. So these are the colorists that recolored the, the collection, and I can't find any damn information on the original colorists. Uh, that happens sometimes. Yeah, so I, I'm sorry, original colorists. I also have no idea what the original art looked like because I'm reading from from these scans, these newer stuff. And for people new to the show may not know, when they recolor a lot of these older comics, because the color may have deteriorated, or they only had the black and white scans, the, the inks and pencils, and then they, they uh, recolored it afterwards uh, for the printing process. Older printing, when you reproduce it digitally, the coloring looks looks really weird. So they redid it uh, with new digital coloring and a lot of it's very contentious. For a good example, when they recolored the, the killing joke, people were furious. Uh, yeah, same thing happened with a couple of classic X-Men stories, but I actually kind of rather uh, like the recolorings. I, I don't like that uh, late 80s, early 90s color work. I think that the touch-up stuff looks nicer. <laughs> <laughs> we are judging this based on the new coloring. So, Jake, why don't you give us a little bit of history on the creators? Well, the creator I'm most familiar with coming in here is uh, Roy Thomas. You a big Roy Thomas fan coming into this book? No, this is the first Roy Thomas work I've read. Uh, in fact, this is the first Marvel comic that I've read pre-2000. Is that true? Oh, then this is good. I, I, I didn't realize I think, that. We're gonna... I think it actually is. Maybe, I've probably read like a scattering, like I read the Spider-Man wedding issue, but... Yeah, I think this is the first, like, lengthy pre-2000 Marvel work. Yeah. Well, if so, uh, if you're not familiar, Elias or any of our listeners, Roy Thomas was a longtime writer for Marvel. He became um, editor, I believe editor-in-chief. Uh, yeah, editor-in-chief of Marvel in 1972. So, like, right after, right as this story, coming out of this story, and probably somewhat based on the strength and success of this story. But the thing I know Roy Thomas uh, best from is Roy Thomas wrote the Conan the Barbarian comics in the 70s. Roy Thomas's work on Conan is like the definitive Conan. I know, obviously, uh, he didn't create Conan. Conan was created by Robert E. Howard. But in keeping the uh, myth of Conan the Barbarian alive and setting the tone of what a Conan story is like and making that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie happen, I feel like Roy Thomas is the guy you got to credit. And in addition to that, Roy Thomas is one of those Marvel writers who he got in early. He created uh, so many uh, popular Marvel characters, characters as popular as Wolverine and the Vision. Uh, he created Carol Danvers, the woman we now know as Captain Marvel. Luke Cage and Iron Fist were uh, creations of his. He wrote the original uh, Ultron story in the pages of Avengers and a bunch of like lesser remembered characters. Like I, I bet there's a lot of people who don't know Squadron Supreme or uh, Kill Raven. 
is I know it had I know it has fans, but uh, not a lot. Uh, he created Valkyrie, who went on to be played by Tessa Thompson. What was a pretty good movie that I saw not too long ago for the hundredth time. <laughs> Just a small movie. But like Roy Thomas, real prolific Marvel guy, uh, and one of the real early Marvel guys who uh, I think really sets the tone. Like along with Stan Lee, Roy Thomas's writing style and his his sometimes overly eloquent soliloquies and his stupid pop culture references like merge together to create what I think of as like Marvel style. And it really shines through in this this story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This story is a great example of his work for for better and for worse. Yeah. We've also got the Buscema brothers, Sal and uh and John. I know. They were all you know about you want to talk about the Buscemas? You know a little bit about them? Not not really. Um, but what I do know with relation to this book is that they were originally I think it was Sal Sal started off in the book and because of deadlines or because of working multiple books, they had to bring in another artist, and that's when they brought in Neil Adams to work as an artist on this. But I don't know as much about Sal and John Buscema other than they are also quintessential Marvel artists. Their stuff, when you think Marvel, these two look exactly like if you've read anything by Mark Bagley recently, he's kind of following in their tradition of square jaws, really like, I mean, although they channel Kirby far more than than Bagley does. Yeah, I was going to say I uh you know, I I've liked Bagley uh, I've liked work from Bagley uh, time and again, but the Bushemas I think are like a league above. They I love the Bushemas artwork. I love this 60s and 70s artwork style too. We, when we when we get into it, the art is my favorite part of this book by far. Mm -hmm. I guess it's also worth noting that I think John, yeah, John's the older brother. John and Roy Thomas stuck together. They did Conan together. They collaborated on a bunch of Avenger stuff, and John Buscema is probably um, one of the definitive Avengers artists in these early years. He did a lot of classic Avenger stories, and Sal is most notable, in my opinion, in uh, he was had a lot to do with the original Guardians of the Galaxy series, not the team from the movie, although he also uh, co-created Rocket Raccoon. But the team from like the 40th century, that's a big ripoff of DC's Legion of Superheroes. Oh. Sal co-created, uh, or he definitely, he didn't, what didn't create them, he definitely was a definitive early artist on them. We also got works by Neil Adams, who is a pretty prominent and notable comic creator. But I think, I think of Neil Adams as a DC guy mostly. Yeah, it's weird, but he was originally a, let me, let me see if I can find it, but he was originally at Marvel and... What was the book? And Marvel, he, he did um, early issues of X-Men back in the X-Men. He, he did some uh, fill-in Fantastic Four stuff after Kirby left. Yeah. But uh, Neil Adams, the, the book that I most think of from Neil Adams is a DC book, is a Green Lantern, Green Arrow, which he did with the uh, recently deceased Denny O'Neill. That book is just like a Stone Cold classic. One of the, the first comics to deliberately tackle uh, political current events in a way that was really groundbreaking at the time. Or when I say comics, of course, I, I should uh, specify, I mean, mainstream superhero comics with corporate IP. But he was using it to do like really cool political stuff. Yeah. And I think he's worth celebrating for that. All, all of the, the artists and writers on this book, they are about as classic as classic can get. Certainly as far as Marvel's concerned. And they work so many issues. I wanted to find out a little more about Sal and the page just keeps scrolling. So many issues. did a lot of issues of Amazing Spider-Man, Marvel Team-Up, Captain America, Daredevil. and then Yeah, we're definitely Thor, forgetting somebody's favorite. Conan, the Incredible Hulk. And definitely looking over some of the other stuff. He was on Thor in and out for what looks like... <laughs> 
probably over a decade. I bet. From issue 193 to 382, he had a bunch of issues throughout. Nothing super consistent, but still pretty amazing. So I, I think there's a lot more context we can give to the story and the continuity and stuff of the Kree Scroll War. Yeah. But I think a lot of that's going to emerge as we talk about specific elements. So I kind of want to start by asking you a question, Elias. Mm -hmm. This is your first Marvel comic pre-2000. Did you like the Kree Scroll War? This question coming. I don't know. You're not sure if you like it. That's a cool I'm place to start. Sure. I, I kind of feel similarly. I have mixed feelings as well. It's always hard to go back to really not. I don't want to call it standard superhero fare, but like when you get quintessential superhero works, especially in the early 70s, Marvel was less than a decade old. Yeah, Marvel, uh, Marvel proper, Marvel as we think of it today, starts in 1962 with the publication of Fantastic Four number one yeah. by Stanley and Jack Kirby. There was a company that sort of turned into Marvel, but like Mar the Marvel universe start definitely starts there mm -hmm. and other stuff gets kind of grandfathered in. Yeah, Timely and Atlas. Yeah, it was originally called Timely Comics, later called Atlas, and finally Marvel. I think the other like vocabulary that's helpful for talking about what we're trying to talk about is the different ages of comics from the golden age to the silver age to the bronze age so the golden age is around the time that batman and superman are coming out timely comics was publishing during the golden age but marvel itself was not we there's, there's not really a lot of golden age marvel stories to talk about that's more dc the silver age i love one of my favorite things to talk about in comics is debating when the ages begin and end and how many there are and what they're called about like I, I love this stuff but by and large a lot of people agree that the silver age starts with fantastic four in 1962 the beginning of the bronze age is is even more contentious though a lot of and some people say it starts in 1970 some people says it happens later but there's a uh, definitely tonal distinctions between a silver age and a bronze age book i feel like that was kind of a, a dry context but what i'm trying to say is that this book's right on the cusp and so i don't know whether it feels to me like a silver age book even though it probably came out after the start of the bronze age when i was doing some of the the prep work for the episode this is listed as one of those books that helped start not helped start but like was at the start of the bronze age but reading it it feels like kind of one of those a silver age comic but I also have recently been working my way through Saga of the Swamp Thing over at the Direct Competition, and those early issues feel like this in terms of tone, and that is firmly within the Bronze Age. Like as Jake was saying, this is a really weird book coming at a really weird era, and it it's such an interesting way of approaching it because it's build and it's packaged and it's sent as this event it's the kree scroll war but it took place in the pages of avengers from avengers 89 through 97 well uh, uh big events as we think of them today hadn't really been invented yet like if you wanted to do a big story you just told everyone it was a big story and to check out whatever the comic was you didn't publish a separate series even like reading it it doesn't feel like an event no it definitely doesn't it doesn't have the hallmarks of even like an in issues event and this might be just because i haven't read a lot of you know pre-event comics events like i haven't read anything pre-original secret war i haven't read anything pre-crisis on infinite earths which are the two kind of er examples of the event so i don't i may just not have context yeah, and even stuff like uh, the early uh, X-Men crossovers, because X-Men, I think, was a series that really uh, helped build up the event to what it is today. But even those early events in the 80s um, feel a lot closer to what we think of as mo in modern events. This just felt like, I don't know, a goofy story. It was like a, yeah. a bunch of silly shit happened. And, uh, and then at the end, there was a twist that tied it all together in a somewhat satisfying way. 
somewhat a theoretically satisfying way. It just it didn't feel like a Kree scroll war. Well, okay, so that's kind of what I want to dig in. So we got the Kree and the Skrulls. A lot of people might know them uh, from the movies and stuff. They've been appearing all over the Marvel movies. The Skrulls are uh, naturally a green-skinned, uh, wrinkly-chinned aliens with shape-shifting powers who um, first appeared in the pages of Fantastic Four and fight the Fantastic Four a whole lot. I always have trouble describing the Kree. I'd love to hear just like, what's your uh, two-sentence description of the Kree? All right. My description of the Kree is super advanced alien race, kind of weirdly into eugenics, ruled by a living supercomputer that is like the Sybil system from Psychopaths, if you've ever watched it but also more of an asshole. I have not watched that, but he's definitely an asshole, the Supreme Intelligence. They're supposed to be blue! I only know well, no, there's all sorts of, there's all colors blue. No, there's all sorts of colors of Kree. There's blue Krees and pink Krees, and then they got all sorts of colors going in the comics. I've only ever seen the blue Kree. They only ever talk. They're more fun to draw. So if you if you're an artist and you're drawing a crowd scene, I yeah, you know, you're gonna want to paint some people blue, I guess. Yes. The one thing you didn't mention that I think that uh, plays into the story and is really weird and is a sticking point for me at least is that the conflict of the Kree, at least in the early days, and it comes back uh, here and there is that the Kree are facing down what they call evolutionary stagnation. And this is a concept that never has made a lick of sense to me scientifically, but from like a fantasy storytelling perspective, they're worried that their race has like achieved eugenics perf perfection, I guess, and that there, there's no more growth. And so they're obsessed with trying to provoke mutations like the humans are always going through and turning into superheroes. And they're just like desperate to make their own superheroes. But for whatever reason, Creed genes don't seem to like get bit by a radioactive spider and turn into Spider-Man. They just get bit by a radioactive spider and get cancer. <laughs> Um, and they're bummed about that. And, you know, I get it. I'm bummed about that because I live in the real world where that would probably be the case. But, like, it's just a weird idea for a conflict. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, I get the scrolls. They are shapeshifters and they're prototypical little green men, evil aliens from, like, old pulpy sci-fi. I get what you're doing with the Kree. With, with the scrolls, I mean. But the Kree, I never really, never really click with me. It's a harder buy-in for me with Kree stories. Uh, if you... It's weird because I kind of see both. They both are archetypical sci-fi space empires they both have their roots in very very traditional golden age of sci-fi uh, ideas especially yeah. pre that whole we've reached the evolutionary potential of our species and have to go you know fucking around with other uh, peoples to figure that out such a weird concept it's, it's, i just it doesn't jive with modern science so i have trouble suspending my disbelief well yeah it, of course it doesn't I, I think they've kind of transformed in in more recent years to be more like what i believe the intent behind it of old sci-fi stuff was they're just this big technological empire that they're basically elitists and they're, they're authoritarian and they have these really kind of fucked up ideas about what does it mean to be you know good and perfect and whatnot but not quite to like the extreme of certain certain villains that i can't quite remember because red scroll red scroll <laughs> red scroll is a great idea for a character marvel if you're listening we got a red scroll no, don't do it we'll get a red hulk situation <laughs> uh, no i can do it i can write the red scroll it'd be so good I mean, bad, he'd be oh, evil, God. but it would be a good character. Authoritarian is definitely the right word to use, because if you need authoritarian assholes and the Kree show up, I immediately get prickly, like, oh, I can't wait to see these guys get put in their place as oh, Earthlings. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The main Kree character, the Kree are mainly represented in this era of Marvel by a really interesting character. Interesting in that he is almost completely forgotten and wants to be forgotten by modern Marvel, and that is the character of Marvel. <laughs> Captain Marvel. <laughs> yeah. 
maybe we'll put a, some notes in the in the or we'll put a link in the show notes because I I know people have uh, gotten into this, but uh, Captain Marvel is kind of the result of a long lawsuit that gets much longer and weirder before we hit modern days, where DC ha- had a character named Captain Marvel, but Marvel was called no, Marvel. No, 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 not DC. Fawcett, comic. right? Fawcett originally. Yeah, it's very complicated. But the short version is just that Marvel was like, we should have the character named Captain Marvel, and due to some legal shenanigans, um, they created this character. But here's my question to you, Elias: Is Captain Marvel, Marvel, a good character? It's hard to tell because so many of these early Avengers are just they're they're such assholes. Yeah, but I, I like some Thor's an asshole in this, and Iron Man's an asshole in this, and I enjoyed both of them. Did you like Captain Marvel? Did you, mm-hmm. were you, did you find them interesting? I gotta say, I did not, and it's probably because he spends most of his time in chains, yelling about, I should have known it was you, (laughs) and then mumbling about some sort of cosmic destiny and some murder orb. Well, and Captain Marvel, we're talking about superhero comics, so I think the first thing I always look at when I'm like, is this a good character, is this character worth my time, is the design. So much of uh, superhero comics is going to be, do they got a good costume, do they pop off the page, do I, you know, can I make a Halloween costume out of that? Like, I think those design elements are important in this genre. Yeah. Captain Marvel gets like a BB plus for me for those things. He's he's okay. He's got the white hair, which I think is pretty striking, no matter like where you put him. I like that look. His costume's okay. It looks like, it looks very throwbacky. even for the 70s, like it looks like a 1950s superhero costume design. Yeah, he, he looks like he'd be running around with not John Carter. John Carter of Mars? John Carter of Mars. Who's the other pulp hero? Oh, Adam Strange? Mm, no, no, no. Someone not owned by Marvel or DC. Uh, well, regardless, that sort of old school spaceman. Maybe like Dan Dare. Right, like the kind of, uh, he's like uh, got he's like shirtless and got a hairy chest cut poking out of his spacesuit, And he's like on the moons of the Braxis and by an oasis, and there's, like, a babe cradling him because he's been shot by a laser pistol. I feel like he's like that from that kind of story, right? Yeah, exactly. That's his vibe. That's kind of what happens in a bunch of these stories. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, like, that's the kind of sci-fi he's coming from. But what condemns him to, like, the I don't care pile for me with Captain Marvel mm-hmm. is um powers. He doesn't have any—there's nothing interesting going on with his extra-normal abilities. Before we get into that a little more, what do you think of Rick Jones? What do I think of Rick Jones? That's a complicated question. Because at the start of this, the two are the same person, so I didn't know this. Oh, this is a great piece of Marvel trivia. Quick background on Rick Jones. Rick Jones was introduced in The Incredible Hulk number 1 as the kid Bruce Banner saves from like the ditch that irradiates him after the test. Uh, and Rick Jones feels really bad about it, so he pals along with the Hulk and then becomes part of the Avengers. But he's just some regular Joe. They kept around, I guess, as like a Robin-esque sidekick, normal audience proxy. Here, something happened in between, and he and Marvel can switch places from the negative zone to the real world by clicking their Wonder Woman bangles together. Yeah, you guys kind of figured it out from context. A couple other things I'd like to add about Rick Jones is, first, I think Rick Jones is a great idea um, in theory and often is pretty good in practice, but he is like the sidekick to the whole Marvel Universe. They have one sidekick and they all share him. <laughs> um, and I think that's a fun concept because he gets to be the number two guy to be the best friend with a lot of superheroes. And so he gets to um, know them in a really personal way and befriend them and like he sees behind the hero and uh, you know it's it's like also what the role you'd hope a sidekick would play but it's one guy so he can be like oh being captain marvel sidekick sucked but uh, being the hulk sidekick was so fun i just like i like the idea that there's this guy and he's got all this dirt out there but the other thing about rick jones that i think is really fun is that he's supposed to be a hippie <laughs> 
oh yeah. <laughs> he took like a long because like when he comes out in the sixties, he's supposed to be a not unsympathetic, but kind of like cartoonish look at maybe your buddy who's got long hair and talks about peace and love and nuclear disarmament and has an acoustic guitar. The way I, I mean, I wasn't alive at the time, but the way I feel like it played politically was like a laugh of recognition. Like, oh yeah, I got a buddy like that. He's always going to protest and stuff. But that crazy buddy. And I think it's supposed to be uh, light and good fun, just like uh, the type of person that college kids might know. Because that's who uh, Marvel uh, Marvel was very successful at marketing to college kids in the late 60s and early 70s. Yeah. And at this point in Marvel continuity, so he was um, – at one point, Captain America dressed him like Bucky, and he had to dress up like Bucky and take the role of his sidekick in the early Captain America comics. Oh, wow. Okay. He also was the sidekick to the Hulk, and that's kind of his most famous role, I think. He became a Hulk himself in the current comics. He's named uh, the – the A-bomb, which is a stupid name. Rick Jones in the current Hulk comics is by far and away much more interesting than Rick <laughs> Jones with his power bangles and ability to make anything appear from his mind, but only for like 10 pages. Yeah, that ability is not so great. But the, so the thing with Captain Marvel is this was a time when Marvel was experimenting with a lot of like interesting secret identity stuff. And so to give Captain Marvel an interesting gimmick, he and Rick Jones, it's not that they share a body, but there's only one of them can exist at, in the universe at once and they have to swap places. They share each other's thoughts and they can see through each other's eyes and stuff, but they swap like Thor and Donald Blake or like Firestorm a little bit. It's like that kind of idea. And I think that's, I always like that dynamic in superhero comics. I think that's always fun. I wonder if Marvel did that more than twice. If feels like they really like that swap oh I can, yeah valkyrie was like that originally oh uh, still up until up until the end of war of the realm she swapped places with annabelle right annabelle riggs uh you're right so valkyrie's been like that yeah a bunch of characters have had the uh only one of us can exist at once and we have to swap thing captain marvel and rick jones are probably one of the most classic examples mm -hmm. i guess uh the most classic is is the original captain marvel billy batson wow well, yeah Original in big, big air quotes. Yeah, I wonder if they were inspired by that swap. This seems like a great thing for future research. Brian, hit us up. So getting into the Kree Scroll War itself, I've read this before. I read it about 10 years ago when I was trying to like get really into Marvel stuff, and I struggled with it then. I struggle with it less now, but I, it was still kind of a struggle. But what I forgot, which just totally took me by surprise, was how long it takes to turn into anything resembling a Kree Scroll War. There's just like oh so God. much other stuff. There's so much bullshit. I mean, some of the bullshit was my favorite stuff. It's like, it makes total sense for the era and for, for everything. It's like, of course, it would, they would have to, each issue would have to kind of be self-contained and be the big plumastic, you know, issue because there was no internet. There was no direct market at the time. As far as I'm aware, you went to your local newsstand or general store and whatever issue they had. It was the issue that they had. You had to make it so that someone walks in and is like, oh shit, there's more Avengers and just grab it off the shelf. So, but the individual adventures are, they're fine. They're fun. They're wacky, goofy, Marvel, sci-fi stuff. But the Kree Squall War itself, it's just like, where is it? I was, I, we got to like the last two or three issues in the collection. I'm like, but where is the war? Where is the so war? So one thing that really struck me about that was um, there have been a lot of retcons, a lot of retroactive continuity surrounding the Kree Scroll War. It's a story that Marvel's revisited before. And the one I'm thinking of specifically is in the Illuminati, the original Illuminati series. There's a story where the great minds of the Marvel Universe, including like Iron Man and Mr. Fantastic and Doctor Strange and Professor X, they go to the Kree and the Scroll planets. But what struck me here is this entire story is Earthbound. Like, when you hear Kree Scroll War, you're like, oh, yeah, the Avengers are going to board a spaceship and go to into the stars and, and be involved in this war. 
but it's not. It's just like a bunch of goofy aspects of this ancient war spilling out onto Earth and then like turning people into cavemen who are horny for the wasp. <laughs> that whole issue was so uncomfortable. <laughs> Weirdly, though, was kind of the best artwork in the, the whole run. I, the artwork I thought was so good. Well, the I, art, I like the, the artwork throughout. I like the artwork throughout the entire thing. Because you've got all those great Kirby-isms from Rishemas, and, and then you've got Neil Adams with his really, like, super layered scrolls that look like they have seven chins. Oh, yeah, and their ears don't even look like ears. They're like these crazy appendages. Their yeah. mouths are, like, a little bit too wide to be a human, which is a little unsettling. It made them look threatening and menacing and, and alien, but also made them look like they used to be 700 pounds, lost a lot of weight, and now they just got that extra skin. I love in this artwork, there's a lot of flat planes. There's not, the texture work never gets overwhelming, so, um, yeah. and the, the colors really pop. There's no contouring of the colors, there's no gradients. It's just like, there's blue on Captain America's uh, costume, and then like, a couple of scales to let you know that the thing is supposed to be armor and then some shadows, but otherwise it's just like flat blue and it really pops. The colors pop and there's a reason why these old superhero comics get revisited stylistically again and again. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's something about the art that really worked where the story just kind of, which is probably because of the Marvel method, which was artists would be given a, a rough plot. They would draw the issue and then the writer would come in and fill in the dialogue and the captions. And you would ha sometimes have stories that were wildly different because of whatever a writer would do afterwards. It definitely feels like the art carries most of the Kree Scroll War while the, the story kind of falters a little bit well it's not that the story falters it's just you come in expecting the crease scroll war and what you get is how many issues is this like nine yeah. nine issues uh nine or so issues of like some real silly avengers times because like that caveman story the storytelling wasn't bad in it that an alien shows up wanting to turn all earthlings into like mindless neanderthals and that plays into the Cree eugenics thing where they were like oh we can conquer them because our genes are perfect and they're just primitives there was a whole two issue arc about the inhumans right the inhumans show up and there's a lot of cameo a ton of cameos everyone shows up at one point or another in this which is probably what made it feel like an event right yeah it definitely feels like it spans the entire marvel universe which is really nice it just it doesn't live up to the title necessarily <laughs> It feels like, you know, the Kree scroll skirmish. Right. Yeah. And this is one battle in a war that they sort of imply and then later uh, really visit in a lot of other great comics that, that come in the decades to come. The reason, though, I kind of I think you're giving the story a little bit of a short shrift, even though I, I mostly agree with you. Like I, I struggled to stay engaged a lot of the time mm -hmm. is um, at the end, a lot of stuff that seemed like isolated and it didn't matter un ends up um, coming together in a way. That, well, so whether or not it's satisfying is is debatable but it does come together there's an effort made to resolve a bunch of plot threads to make it feel like you've been reading one story which is and i want to specifically talk about it in case people haven't read it and so spoilers for the end of a 50 year old comic a senator who is building public mistrust in the avengers because of their alliance with captain marvel it turns out is really a scroll in disguise. The scroll, upon being revealed, is killed by an angry mob. And yeah. the real senator is discovered. And then he comes back and he's like, I'm really sorry. I got no problem with aliens, guys. Avengers are cool. Everyone chill. And that's the resolution. Before we get into what may, what I really, really liked about the reveal, mm -hmm. maybe not so much the guy just getting straight up murdered by a mob. That was Yeah, that's how it was me very weirdly. <laughs> It's really dark. It also only it takes place entirely on one page, which is kind of nice for the, the compressed era of comics where 
a lot of things happen in a short amount of pages. So you you do actually get a lot of story. There are just a lot of really weird little things throughout that I wanted to highlight before we kind of talk about that reveal and, and why they did that reveal. One of them being, I didn't know Annihilus was this old. I would say he's a classic Fantastic Four villain. Yeah, I had no idea. I thought he was introduced in Annihilation. Oh, well, I'm uh, glad you got to meet him before we ever we go and read Annihilation because, yeah, Annihilus is, um, I mean, Annihilus is a chump, but he's a real, um, <laughs> he's got a real legacy. So there was that, and I'm always, I'm always, maybe not surprised, but it's amazing how often things like the McCarthy era continually show up in comics and whatnot, and then people go back and say, oh, there was never any politics in comics. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is as classic as classic gets, and we're still and we're getting people being like, look how stupid QAC was. Yeah, those the, the people with that criticism are uh, disingenuous at best, and ignorant might be even a little worse, and they might be something even worse than that. But yeah, I don't hold a lot of merit to that criticism. I got a couple more stray thoughts. Yeah, hit me. I'm interested. So for a little while, I thought this was where the Savage Lands was created because again. I'm not much of an X-Men fan and didn't realize that the Savage Land was created in the pages of really early X-Men. So when when they went to this secret new special land in the middle of the Antarctic that was now, you know, lush and green and had prehistoric animals that also for some reason wanted to attack and or bone the wasp. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. I thought this was this was the original creation of the Savage Land and then the whole thing kind of implodes on itself after two issues. I'm like, "Oh, well, oh well." Status quo, gotta keep that. I was pretty surprised by that too. I was a little confused myself because I do know the origins of the Savage Land. And for a minute I was like, was there a retcon I forgot about? Was this the Savage Land for a little while? And then like they did another story. But no, it's just uh, like another weird jungle. I think this is in Alaska technically, not in the Antarctic. Oh, I thought it was, oh, the Arctic. They said the Arctic, not the Antarctic. But I, I was confused too. It was like uh, just like jungle in the in the tundra and you're just like... Oh, yeah, the Savage Land. How many jungles could Marvel have that are not in the right climate? And it turns out more than one. With prehistoric creatures. Yeah. And then my favorite my favorite recurring gag, which I don't think was actually a gag, was just Quicksilver getting wrecked. That's a recurring gag for, like, the whole Silver Age and Bronze he Age. Just, he shows up and he's like, I can do this, Wanda. And Wanda's like, no, wait. And then he gets smacked and is unconscious. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a constant with uh, Pietro. I mean, I'm flipping through this, though, and, like, you're, you're so right. The artwork does so much uh, heavy lifting. Because all of the like Thor smashing spaceships with his hammer is just like, I want that painted on a van. I want a poster of that in my bedroom. I want that everywhere. That stuff looks so cool. I really actually, I really like the final issue splash page where Rick Jones is just like, boom, and all of these early, early, timely, uh, early Atlas characters come out of his mind because in the Marvel Universe, the Marvel comics exist, but they also don't. Like all these characters, Captain America had a comic book in the, the Marvel Universe, but all of the other characters are just the predecessors to the modern Marvel versions. You had the original Human Torch, the original Vision. You've got, I think he's called Flaming Skull. No, Blazing Skull, which my guess is a mix of the pulp hero, Black Terror, and Ghost Rider, like a pre-version of them. Namor shows up again. Angel, the original Angel, who was a detective. I just found that really interesting because I didn't know half these characters existed. I knew the Human Torch did, but uh, we should then we should uh, put something on our reading list. If not a Golden Age comic, although that would be really interesting if we could track a, a good reprint down. Mm -hmm. There's been a bunch of good modern Marvel comics that take place in that era that are interesting. Would one of them be the Twelve? No, that was not one of the ones I was thinking. I mean, that is one that could be read, but I don't think it's good. Ooh, ooh. 
we'll 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 have a fight of that another time. <laughs> I'm I'm interested. Um, I mean, I would be happy to revisit. I was thinking of Ed Brubaker's The Marvels Project. I think is a really interesting comic. That would be interesting. Did you have any more stray thoughts? The final stray thought is kind of on one of our two big final topics before we get to what graces the back cover of the collection. I want to talk a little bit about some of the character work that I found the most striking. All right, go for it. So we're talking about Captain Marvel. I think that this is one of the most... I mean, obviously he had his own series and everything, but this is like a, one of the most famous Captain Marvel stories. And I think he doesn't acquit himself well here at all. I, I found him very boring. Oh, yeah. He's mostly a prisoner. And then when even when he gets to be more active, like, I don't care about it. He's like strong and got laser fists. And what's his motivation? I'm fine. No idea. One character who I think is super weird throughout all of this, and I this is not the first time I've read him from this era, but I forgot that he this was his identity, is the character who we normally call Hawkeye. Oh, yeah. It appears here as Goliath because he's got size changing powers and maybe his worst costume. Oh, it's a garbage costume. It's not the worst superhero costume I've ever seen, but it's definitely Clint Barton's worst superhero costume. It's pretty dull. And unlike Barton's normal, you know, purple, I don't want to call it a leotard, but whatever his his normal costume is, or even like the weirder, the weirder. It's like a male. Yeah, but like it's it's just kind of standard. And future Goliaths pull it off a lot better. Did you call what he's wearing standard? Because what he's wearing seems to mostly be like mountain climbing straps, but with no other clothing. Yeah, I wouldn't. Standard. I, I guess I got different standards than you respect. I found his contributions to be like lacking and his characterization. It just like he was there, I guess. I did not enjoy Clint Barton in this. And I like Clint Barton from this era. I think he's funny. I mean, he's, he's brainwashed for about half of it. Ain't that always the story with Hawkeye? Jeez. Yeah. The best character, though, the one who I forgot how well-written he was in this era was Vision. Mm. A lot of the Vision stuff was weird because a lot of people keep on making really sweeping statements about, like, living in a universe with robots, like they know what's up. And that's just not how I think about robot stuff. Just like when, uh, when so there's the part where he seems to die, right? He's, like, injured and everyone thinks he's dead. Yeah. And everyone's going off about, they're like, uh, oh, he doesn't have a pulse, so he must be dead. Well, do androids have pulses? Yeah. They do, and he's dead. Um, I don't hear a heartbeat or breathing he's definitely dead and i was just like what are these like uh, why does that why is everyone talking about this like we agree isn't there like isn't our tony stark and hank pym in the room and they can like speak up i didn't understand why everyone was making these weird assumptions about robot physiology and then like yes and i'm totally confident i'm captain america and i have a phd in robot biology who who and who ultimately is like y'all are stupid i think it was hank it was Hank. And I was going to say, and so the Hank rescuing Vision in that one sequence is definitely my favorite sequence of this entire uh, story. I don't know. I really, I really like the countdown sequence. The countdown sequence was the best art. That visual was really great. But just the adventure of Ant-Man needs to go into his robot friend and, like, basically perform surgery is such a cool Ant-Man scenario and such a cool Vision scenario. It's just, like, a great use of both those characters. And it was really exciting, even though the science was totally silly and screwy. Like, I liked listening to them go on about, like, oh, and this system is a bunch of tentacles that act like his white blood cells, and they think that you're a bacteria. Like, I thought that was all really clever. And I just passed through these special bubbles that allow my density to be changed. Uh, so that this gets me to another thing that, we, if, you know, if you said you could only read comics from before 2000 or after 2000, which would you pick? I would pick after, and I'm sure you feel the same at this juncture. I wonder if we could change your mind. You might. At the moment, uh, well... I mean, it's hard because are you asking Marvel, are you asking DC, or even are you asking, like, independent stuff? Bone was published pre-2000. That's true. I would not read that. That's, I mean, that's all true. But my, my point being, I, um, it, 
I don't think I have a huge rose-colored glasses problem with like older Marvel books. But mm. one thing I really like is old superhero comics have superheroes using superpowers. And especially after Brian Michael Bendis took over the Avengers, I feel like you get many issues where superpowers are never used. Or like there's a fight and, you know, people are flying and shooting uh, rays from their various parts of their body but it's not the same thing as ant-man has to shrink down to go into his density shifting robot friend and then the the density shifting bubbles like infect him like that was also interesting and i love creative use of superpower stuff i think that's an important part of the genre not using that is not using the genre to its fullest potential yeah i i see what you mean I think a really good place that was done is current Miss Marvel with Kamala Khan. Totally. So much of that uses her powers to her extent. And I would also argue that like Unbeatable Squirrel Girl did the same thing because part of her superpower was being super empathetic and also a computer science major. And so many of her adventures revolve around that. And then she also has general squirrel powers. Yeah, I can think of good examples now. And Yeah, I think there are, there are a lot of good examples, but I, I get what you mean. There are a lot of battles where it's just punch hard, pew pew laser, but none of the pulpy sci-fi weird superhero power situations. It's almost like the superpowers get left to the artwork and the, the writer almost never touches the aspect of superpowers. They never yeah, because write it's scenarios as, you know, old or cliched to really over explain what's going on but sometimes that's nice sometimes you need that right well one of so one of the things i, I love so much in marauders a book we were talking about is th that it does this very well like in that fight scene that i love so much kate pride phases through a tank at one point and she drops a smoke bomb in the tank and it fills up with smoke so they have to come out and i thought that was really clever mm -hmm. or not, not even really clever that was regular clever but my point is like my standard has been so lowered because so few writers write superheroes using their powers ever i mean they don't even bring out the mandroids or don't even bring out the mandroids anymore anymore another character who uses their powers in a really fun way in this is a character who i think we should talk about is Scarlet witch mm -hmm. which i think also ties into one of the other you know running criticisms possibly of the era as well as the book is the rampant sexism yeah we got to talk about some of the rampant some of the sexism was real wild too oh yeah we were talking elias before and at the show elias and i were talking about a pretty timely betty for dan reference yeah so timely yeah and jarvis at one point just straight up bursting into a room and being like captain america iron man oh i guess you're here too wanda wait you're missing the wildest part of that scene so it wasn't captain america iron man it was quicksilver and and vision and then he's like oh and you're oh. here too wanda what's wild about that is that vision again an android a, a new type of organism or living being who these people have not encountered but they're like gender essentialism is such that because this android presents what i think is male he counts as male and thus is like more valuable to me than scarlet witch a woman i just was like the ideas of robot gender there were nuts oh yeah another crazy place where assumptions were happening but despite the sexism around how scarlet witch is written i found scarlet witch to be a lot of fun i think she's still written in a very sexist way today but she was standing up for herself a lot in this comic where like her brother would be obviously sexist and she'd be like pietro that's gross and then she would do the thing yeah the panel that directly precedes jarvis bursting into the room wanda wanda I, it ill becomes you to flaunt your carefully acquired colloquialism at your male betters be off with you girl and then she's like well 
fuck you. I've got my own answer via the feminine mystique. <laughs> right. But now that sexism is gross and very like blatant and obvious, but I almost appreciate how blatant it is because she could um, respond to it. And I find that the way that Scarlet Witch has been written recently where she's like, we got like a real, uh, she's a mom or she's somebody's girlfriend or she never, and she, I guess what I'm trying to say is um, Scarlet Witch feels so much less active and dynamic to me now. She's so much a victim of circumstances and she's so reactionary in how they write her. And she's only, and she almost never is the uh, subject of the story that she's in. It's always about somebody else. And at least in this, she felt like a, like an integral member of the team. And even though people were disrespecting her, she just like wasn't taking their shit because she's a superhero. Yeah. And super, you're right. She's like an aspirational hero. So like, I do wish she had more to do in these because she, she, along with her brother, kind of both get just, they get trapped. They don't really do much. And then they help with the fight. They, they don't get a lot of really good moments in this, this story as superheroes. I disagree though. I love how they write Scarlet Witch's power so much in this. Like, well, I, I'm not disagreeing with the powers. I mean, like what they give her to do. Like both her and Quicksilver get just dunked on. I, but whenever I see Scarlet Witch in like a big fight scene in a comic today, she's always just like shooting red lasers out of her hand or just like in the movies, she's always just like twisting her fingers and something weird happens and somebody oh, yeah. like falls down. But like, so her powers are like hex powers and they affect luck and probability. But the way this manifests is like a, something random happens. So like, I remember there's a part where they're fighting um, what they think is the Fantastic Four and she she shoots a hex bolt and it makes a water main explode under the street and water soaks the human torch. And, I was, and it looks cool and I was excited by that. I was like oh that's neat i like that wanda never knows exactly what's gonna happen but like if she puts enough of her will into it she can kind of make a fortunate coincidence happen that's fun yeah that is fun i was just always so distracted by the you know by the silver bronze ageisms of they'll stop the scarlet witch perhaps but not her mutant hex power oh yeah yeah that, and see, i'm all about that stuff i like it's cheesy in a way that i appreciate i just um to be clear i'm not saying that i wish we could go back to this era of sexism i i I would like us to eliminate the sexism, but I like that she manages to be dynamic, and I wish that they had preserved that dynamism as the character evolved and took on different roles. Yeah, and like you kind of wish that they had preserved the unique and clever use of her power. Yeah, as you can tell from this conversation, like superpowers are a pretty important part of superhero stories to me, but like the most important thing is the characterization. But I like Scarlet Witch. Like, I don't like Quicksilver. I think he's being an asshole. I think Jarvis is being an asshole. Oh, yeah. Like you said, like most of the Avengers seem like they're being assholes, but Wanda doesn't seem like she's being an asshole. She's seems super fun she seems like a cool person to be friends with and she seems like a hero i want to follow i would actually have loved to see day in the life of scarlet witch before they got derailed by a crazy senator man we'll read some 80s stuff that i think does right by wanda maybe one day one day yeah i'll put that on the on the ever-growing list on the ever-growing list i guess the final kind of bit to talk about is like the finale finale and what actually the event that ties everything together and it's it actually is directly tied to that scene that we were talking about with the first pipe so back in I'm trying to find the, the caption box, but back in an early Fantastic Four comic, the Fantastic Four beat up a bunch of scrolls. Uh, I think there was Fantastic Four number two. There we go. I believe published in 1962. And it's um, so in the first issue of Fantastic Four, they fight the Mole Man and they come together as a team. In the second issue, they fight these scrolls. Like Doctor Doom hasn't even been invented yet. It's Mole Man and then some scrolls. And those are the Fantastic Four villains. Yeah. And the scrolls get really beat up. But because the Fantastic Four are heroes, they're like, we can't just kill them. And we don't have yet our weird fascist prison. Thanks, Mark Miller. So they instead freeze their shape and wipe their memories and turn them into cows. A really epic cool way to treat prisoners in my opinion yeah at some point i forget where it's specifically announced that they are oh 
because it's when the scrolls and the Kree actually start going to war again. The beginning of this, after Ronin takes over, the Kree ousts the Supreme Intelligence and is like, get the fuck out of here. I'm king now, uh, and sets them off to war, and a signal is sent out, and it reactivates the scrolls. So these scroll cows have to fight the Avengers, and they pose as the Avengers. But there were originally four scrolls and not three. And in the final, it, the final shot of Fantastic Four number two, uh, I think it was Jack Kirby. Yeah, yeah, he drew only three cows instead of four. <laughs> and Roy Thomas or, or or Neil Adams, I think, noticed it and was like, "Hey, what happened to that fourth? cow and thomas went oh i can work with that and basically retcon why kirby's art flub would, would you like this story better if it was called avengers the fourth cow <laughs> no because that would break the twist that would be like putting the the main villain on the cover of the great darkness saga for Teen Titans. Oh wait, they did that. I think it did. I, I think that's a better name for this story. It's just like it ended up not really being about the Kree Scroll War. It ended up being about that fourth Scroll Cow. Yeah, yeah, it was. I know you love the Scroll Cows. I love it. I lo I love that whole twist. It's like, well, why was the why was one Scroll able to pretend to be a uh, whatever it's called the the senator? Oh, it's because the fourth cow, the fourth Scroll, never got turned into a cow. Yeah, and he ran wild. This does lead to Empire, which is why we started reading it. But weirdly, I don't want to talk about Empire yet. Um, and part of that. Yeah. is because the next book we've chosen to read for our book club, I think is a great, it, it, it's not just, a, it's not only about the Kree and the Skrulls, but it continues that thread um, and will get us closer to Empire. So I think we should uh, hold off on that wider conversation until next book club meeting. Yeah, and that might also give us a couple issues of Empire, you know, to actually talk about. I don't know yeah. what our release schedule is like. I don't know either at this moment, but do you want to maybe introduce, if, if, is that all for Kree Scroll War? That, that's Yeah, that's it. I, I just wanted to end on the cows because... You love those cows. So insistent on having the cows, he even redrew the cover of the collection which now graces the back of this collection which is the vision running at or through i'm not quite sure a door screaming three cows shot me down help me with the avengers doing their standard but very dynamic uh turnaround boob and butt pose good vision face though good face oh, yeah. the vision. neil adams is a fantastic artist not such a great storyteller Sorry. Uh, on that note, though, what are we reading for next month? So next month, we are reading a more modern book, a post-2000 book, The Young Avengers by Alan Heinberg and Jim Chung. Yeah. So this series, uh, we're going to be reading the, is it only 12 or just the first 12 issues? Um, It's 12 issues. There are more issues of Young Avengers, but the numbering obviously gets screwy because it's Marvel and they're addicted to that. But it's the 12 issues yeah. of so it's Young Avengers number 1 to 12 by Heinberg and Chung. This is a book that's near and dear to my heart because, uh, as we'll talk about in another issue, this was a comic that was coming out around the time I was getting back into Marvel comics. That being said, this is certainly not by a long shot my favorite story or run on Young Avengers. Yeah, but it is what helps set up the Kree Scroll, not the Kree Scroll War empire yes it helps bridge the gap from the pre-scroll war to empire it will provide hopefully the final pieces for helping to understand you know what the hell is going on i sure hope so although perhaps the kieran gillen and jamie McKelvey run may help us better character wise i don't know i have never read the original young avengers so we'll find out i'm real stoked to be talking to you about it next month Elias. so thank you all for joining us where can people find you on the larger interwebs jake well i am a contributor and an editor at a really cool website called multiversitycomics.com i recommend you check it out it's a great website and on twitter i sometimes post at rambling underscore moose rambling because i tend to ramble 
moose because they're pretty cool as animals go and underscore because that's what you got to do on twitter sometimes baby and i am at quetzal-ish q-u-e-t-z-e-l-i-s-h because you never know when you might need a name that starts with the q <laughs> thank you all for joining us for uh, another episode of make mine multiversity and we will see you in a couple weeks excelsior